Alonso. Kyle Lowry is out. What an incredible series he has had. During the regular season, Williams shot 72%, and he missed the first. Toronto still very much oh. in this. He looks at both. And Tatum is fouled. Tatum now 7 of 9 from the free throw line. Set up with Ibaka. Two-man game here. Now Williams on the switch. He's an excellent defender. Van Vliet puts up a prayer, and it's into the hands of Walker. And now foul is coming, and Boston a chance to ice this one. That's it. That's a ball game. What's up, everybody? It's another edition of Free Association on the Sportsnet Podcast Network. I'm J.D. Bunkus. He's Donovan Bennett. And for the first time in a long time, we're talking without Raptors games on the horizon. Like, we're back into pandemic times. We're back into second wave of no Raptors. Uh, the season is over. They dropped game seven of the Boston Celtics. We thought about jumping on. We thought about doing a podcast as soon as it was over. And yeah, I don't think that anybody had the heart because I've said all season long that this is my favorite TV show, that there's no series better. There's no drama that's better than the Toronto Raptors. There's nothing I enjoy watching more right now in the sports world. And so it sucks to have it over with. How are you feeling? Uh, I feel good. Feel fine. Yeah, it's kind of uh, always it's like even keel guy. Like nothing affects me. Like, I feel good. Uh, I mean, listen, did the way the season ended suck? Yes. Did having the last minutes of crucial basketball happen without Kyle Lowry mm-hmm. on the floor was that unfortunate? Because of an excuse me foul, of course it was. Are there some things that we could Monday morning quarterback in terms of what happened in that game and that second half, and specifically in the last? minute or so sure but if you were to have told me this time last year well one if you told me that they'd be playing flat basketball now i'd be like what do you mean but if you were to have told me at this time last year that they were going to lose their leading score finals mvp they weren't going to make any crazy moves at the deadline and yet they were going to push the boston celtics team with championship aspirations, with a bunch of high lottery draft picks to a game seven that they would have basically run through the regular season the same way they did in their championship year, I would have taken it. I would have been like, yeah, sign me up. Sounds like fun. And it was fun. It was an incredible ride. Even though they won the championship a year ago, I don't know. I'm pretty sure there isn't a team in my adult life that I've had more fun covering and more fun just watching as a fan so yeah it totally sucks um but I, I i think it was a good run and they got the most out of their talent yeah i think so too and perspective matters and that'll be a big part of our discussion today is that yeah expectations matter and that you do need to look at the beginning of the regular season to remember that hey uh you might not have thought the raptors were going to fall out of the playoffs but you're right i don't think that a lot of people expected that there would have been a legitimate title defense where they could have ended up in the finals. I think that what makes it so heartbreaking is while the Boston Celtics, I believe, were the better team, the more talented team, and the deserving winners of that series, you could dream on the next round versus the Miami Heat and think, wow, they could win that one. And then you could dream on the potential of facing a Los Angeles Lakers team that they've beaten twice this year and think, man, they could have beaten that team too. That despite all of the struggles of Pascal Siakam, the up and down play of Norm Powell and Marcus Gasol in this series where they needed all seven of their guys to show up, 
the Raptors were right there. They were right there at the end of a game seven where, you know, maybe one box out or one Norm Powell layup and maybe one less Kyle Lowry foul. Like there's all these different windows of, well, what if they were so close, they were right there on the doorstep. And I think that those losses haunt you a little bit more and that it's a little bit more difficult to swallow. I was thinking, man, would it have almost been better had the Raptors gotten blown out in game seven or had lost this series a little earlier for us to really appreciate what an incredible regular season it was and what an incredible year it was from this Raptors team, a group that I've said many times before really made you feel proud to be a fan of theirs just based on the way that they played, which was hard and with an effort level every single night. And despite having so many injuries and not quite the, the high-end talent level of a lot of teams, basically always gave you a bang for your buck for your entertainment dollar. Like I, every game that I paid to see as a Raptors fan this year and went down to go see was awesome. I saw an experience every single time that I went to a ball game and there's something about being a sports fan and going out and, and spending your hard-earned entertainment dollar on something and always being rewarded and not feeling like the team took a night off. And one of the Raptors' legacies, I think, of this title defense is that they were never really a team that took a night off. So yes, uh, I think that it is important to state that it was a very good season and it was a very fun season and that they were a group that made Toronto very, very proud as defending champions, uh, a group that most people didn't think that it would ever defend uh, or contend. Now can we move on to the sad stuff and the more depressing conversations? Because when you said those things about the end of the game, and I said it was right there, you know, like, hey, all these little small windows, maybe if Kyle Lowry isn't as tired, he doesn't take a cheap foul against uh, Marcus Smart as he's leaning with the shot clock just finishing and bails him out, puts him on the free throw line. Maybe Norm Powell boxes out better and Jason Tatum doesn't get that rebound. Maybe uh, Serge Ibaka gets, uh, gives a better screen and Fred Van Vliet gets open and knocks down a shot. Like maybe, 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 maybe. Maybe. The game was right there for the Raptors. They lose in heartbreaking fashion. I thought that every single result of that game came down to one thing and one thing uh, I would keep reflecting on. And it's the thing that our fan base has been talking about for the last couple of days. And that is everything was a, a byproduct of the inability to perform in that series of Pascal Siakam. He was brutal. He was arguably the worst player in the series. I don't really even know what the case would be against him. Like he was the worst player in the series. Marcus he, Saul was worse. Okay, sure. I mean, Whatever. I, I can't do this argument again. We've done it 15 times. But the point is, is that Siakam is the team's franchise player. He's the best player. They didn't really lean on him to play 20 minutes a night like they do Gasol. They needed him to be a star, and he was dreadful. And he picked his worst game of the series to have it in a game seven. And after Nick Nurse kind of went to the wall and said, hey, we need to get more from you. We need to be able to win a game so that we can get to a game seven and we can show the world, the, the Pascal Siakam that we saw in the regular season. He was someone that was turning the ball over, five turnovers. He was someone who couldn't score. His defense was okay. It's what kept him in the ball game. But for the most part, you know, I saw you tweeting about it too. You thought the same things we all did, which was where was Serge Ibaka and do you take out Pascal Siakam, your max player, and do a DeRozan situation? And that ultimately the reason they lost that game is that Nick Nurse showed a little bit too much faith in the guy that they gave a max contract to. And that had he played better in that series, had he just played normal in that series, I think the Raptors win. Yeah, he wasn't very good, right? Like he literally was the not the first because people were were basically trending saying the same thing. But he he, he was the first post game to admit it that uh, in his mind 
he lost series for them. I think that's a little too harsh. Um, but I, listen, I'm reticent to say that I can ascribe um, a solution better than Nick Nurse can, the person who literally is immersed in what they should and shouldn't do all of the time, right? He's forgotten more about basketball than I will ever know. Having said that, this is what we're here to do. And if I were Nick Nurse, at some point, I know that the saying is like, I'm going to go down with the ship, but sometimes you just don't want to go down with the ship. Like I'll just take a life raft and figure out what I'm going to do after that. And Pascal was still attacking and just nothing would fall. Great take. Ball would somehow rim out. He was giving great effort on defense. And, and actually, his defensive rebounding, helping them close possessions, was paramount and key. But it was the decision-making, the turnovers that were a backbreaker, specifically when uh, you gave up 31 points off of turnovers in the game. And that really was the difference. When you look at the, this team going into that Game 7, part of the reason why they were able to push it to a Game 7 is because out of five of the six previous games, the Raptors had won the turnover battle. That is part of their recipe for success, specifically um, against Boston, because of, of the discrepancy, and not just talent, but discrepancy in the ability to score in the half court specifically. And we saw that down the stretch in this game specifically. And so that's the tough part. Like We have to remember not long ago when Spicy P was point guard P of the bench mob, when he was a point forward, he was given that role because he was such a great decision maker. And it actually was an outlier to the fact that he was so young and the fact that he really struggled to make decisions um, to, to me was the, the chief reason why down the stretch when possessions are so valuable and you're giving him a chance to work out of it and make a, a play. At some point, you just got to got to pull the shoot and say, I'm going in a different direction. I need half court offense I need some three-point shooting and so surge is probably going to be my option down the stretch but but for me just somebody else had to be the option and, and that's tough I would have been okay if 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 they went you know some offense for defense substitutions in the last minute or so so you still had Pascal's length defensively but yeah it was it was it was tough to watch so I agree the playmaking was not quite there and that it's such a huge part of his game and that even, like, we talked about it throughout the series. Like, you have to be able to impose yourself in some way offensively. And it just never really happened. There was, like, some moments where there'd be flashes with Siakam where you thought, okay, that was the move that's now got him engaged in this basketball game. This is now the thing that maybe you see him start to get rolling. And I think that, you know, Nurse probably thought the same thing at times in that series because, you know, you even look at the Raptors when they fall down 9 points in that fourth quarter they call a timeout they come out of it and it's pascal siakam again that gets the basketball and guess what he turned it over like this is what i'm talking about in terms of you know coaches making bad decisions and coaches making bad gambits and that even someone who is nick nurse and who does know more about basketball than you i and michael and mike combined for the rest of our lifetimes that they are still prone to making these at times and that you can get enamored by your star player and that you can coach for beyond what happened in that basketball game. Like, do you think how much of Nurse's decision not to bench Siakam do you think played a part of, hey, this is my guy that if we get out of this game, I'm going to need to be engaged in another tough defensive series against Miami Heat and or 
I don't want to have him go into the offseason feeling like I sat him on the bench and, you know, much like DeMar DeRozan did against the Cleveland Cavaliers where they had to basically say, you know, we, we don't think that you're the guy. We didn't show faith in you down the stretch in these moments, that this is still the guy that they have to work with moving forward. I don't think you're thinking about any of that in a game seven. You're just trying to think of how you get more points in the opposition by the time the clock hits zero, 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 zero. And Nick Nurse was asked if he feels any differently about his usage of Pascal Siakam. And he responded, nope. So uh, he, he was confident in, in his usage of Pascal. And, and whether or not, given some truth serum, he would have a, a different response. I, I, I feel like he was too stuck on his rotation in general. I think he played Mark Saul far too much. I think he played Pascal far too too much and I think he ran the offense specifically through Pascal far too much I would have loved to see some more Matt Thomas minutes you're playing enough zone and box in one that any sort of liability you think he might be on the wings defensively you have the ability to hide that and, and ultimately if you're not able to score then getting stops repeatedly loses its value a little bit and it, it is no coincidence that when this team did not score 100 or more points, they didn't win. And, and so sometimes you have to maybe oversteer to get some offense, whether that was Matt Thomas or playing small, which worked, or even throwing Terrence Davis out for three minutes to see if he's going to give you a spark. I, I felt like he was too bullish on his rotation. And on the flip side, if we look at uh, why the Denver Nuggets have clawed themselves back into a series again for the second time in the playoffs, because Mike Malone is like, listen, I'm loyal to nobody or no one, uh, it, whether it's my veteran guys, whether it's my guys off the bench. He's dared to get a little, little wild with his rotations, and it's got them, again, back in a series um, against, against the Los Angeles Clippers. I'm sorry, Paul Millsap. I like you. You've done a lot in the game. But, like, you may have to come and sit beside me for long stretches. And so uh, I feel like it's, it's interesting, and it's crazy saying this about Nick Nurse because – his rep coming into becoming a head coach was that he's the mad scientist who's willing to try everything. And everything was just, you know, research and development. You do that throughout the regular season for this time of year. And I feel like this time of year, he was pretty conservative. And the few times he did change things, it worked. Going small worked. And, and so um, I almost feel like he oversteered the other way. And he had a, a big and big lineup with Gasol and a Bach at the same time. And I was like, why like what matchup is this exploiting for you in a way that if I'm the Celtics I'm weary like if I'm Brad Stevens and I see Marcus Ole and Ibaka check into the game together am I scratching my head am I nervous all of a sudden I don't think so and and similarly if in this series you're giving Pascal Siakam a heavy dose of touches against Jalen Brown in isolation is anyone on the Celtics bench overly concerned given the way Pascal played for, through the first six games I don't think so. And, and so that's why, again, the novice that I am in relation to Nick Nurse, that's why keeping it real, I was like, this is a troubling decision. But we have to say, you, you have to kind of feel that way regardless of the outcome. Like Norm Powell pushes it one on three, and maybe he should have dribbled back out and set up. And, but you have to feel that way when he's about to let the ball out of his hands before – 
Marcus Smart makes maybe one of the best blocks uh, this playoffs. And so real in real time, I think it's fair that both of us thought, regardless of the outcome, this methodology is a little bit troubling. And, and in this case, the outcome wasn't great. Yeah, I just I think that Siakam needed to get benched at the end of that game. Like, I, I just do. I think that when you don't have it, you don't have it. And he, he couldn't dribble. Like, he, his handle needs to improve this offseason as much as his jump shot does. And, like, he's a guy who's worked on his handle and it's gotten a lot better over the years. But, you know, the turnovers were largely a byproduct of he couldn't even get to the spots where he likes to start because the Celtics were able to kind of get underneath him and, and force some pressure on the ball. That he was... Uh, he wasn't thinking the game well enough. And that's what you saw a big result of the turnovers. Like you said, the decision-making and the Serge Ibaka, he had played really well. I'm not sure that you would have lost anything with his rebounding. You would have lost a little bit with the defense, but like you said, eventually you needed to score in that ball game. You needed to have decisive decision makers. And I, I just thought that was him. And especially given that this wasn't just one bad game for Pascal Siakam. It was a bad series. It was a dreadful series. It's one that he's going to have to take away and really sit with. There was a lot of discussion online about him. There's going to be a lot written about him, both nationally and in Canada. There's going to be a lot said about him nationally and in in Canada or internationally and in Canada. And Kyle Lowry, after the game, talked about his season after the Wizards. And I remember you and I having discussions after that. I remember us talking about whether Casey was going to go, what the big changes were. Could you keep Lowry? Could you keep the Rosen? Was that a pivot point? The Raptors ended up going down the road of becoming a more defensive team and getting Corey Joseph and, and spinning it in that direction with the guard play, walking away from Lou Williams and Gravis Vasquez. But Lowry imparted upon him the idea that we knew he had. We were at that media day. We did a podcast at that media day when Kyle Lowry showed up and was skinny Kyle and talked about reading all of the articles and how upset he was and how it motivated him. He says that he wants Pascal Siakam to do that. I'm just... I'm not sure I believe that you can motivate yourself that way if you're not built that way. Like Siakam has exceeded expectations every which way throughout his career. He has been universally celebrated. He's had a few moments like where he struggled against the Sixers where he tripped Joel Embiid and he hurt his calf and people were really criticizing him for his play in that series. But for the most part, everyone has been thrilled with where he's, what he's done and how he's developed. This is kind of the first time where he has to all of a sudden turn on like the FU attitude? I, I don't know. Do you, do you see that being a motivating factor for him? I, I believe in him finding motivation and coming back better, but I'm not sure like that's the way that it's going to work for him. Like, I think you have to be a Kyle Lowry for that to work. I mean, I don't know if he needs the FU attitude. He just needs time. He needs reps. Mm-hmm. This guy's been playing basketball for 10 years. He's 26. Mm-hmm. Started playing basketball when he was 16. Like, he, he's been fast-tracked to this point. And now we're punishing him based off of that fast success when you have to take steps. We forget now that we see LeBron James like in his late 30s, the finished product, super confident, clutch situation. He lost the finals by being guarded almost exclusively by J.J. Berea in high leverage moments. Like we, we forget that Magic Johnson at one point was tragic Johnson. And then Kobe Bryant airballed a bunch of shots against the Utah Jazz. Like this is what being a superstar is at some point, whether you're Michael Jordan and the Detroit Pistons or, or Kyle Lowry year after year after year, you have to go through these struggles. You have to come back and you have to figure it out. As Andre Iguodala says, you have to go through the mud and the real stars are better for it through that. And, and we obviously 
love what Lowry has done and his willingness to step up in, in big moments. And, and people are already talking about where the statue should be. You, you mentioned the Wizards series, which was years ago. Let's not forget, last year, in game one against the Magic, Kyle Lowry had zero points. He was outplayed by DJ Augustine. And we had all the same conversations. Fast forward a couple rounds, game six against the Warriors, who started the game red hot? It was Kyle Lowry. So, so these things change over time, but they also can change quickly. I'm, I'm reticent to overvalue anything really that happened in this scenario because it's just so random. You had a three-month layoff. You're in a bubble. He is someone who's super close with his brother and his family, who wasn't close to them. To talk to them, you have to pick up your phone. And on his phone, all he's seeing is people hating on his game or hating on the way he looks or, 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 or doing things that are just blatantly racist or, or Canadians basically blaming him and saying that it's his fault, even though they forget how good he played in the finals being guarded by Draymond Green. They probably wouldn't have a championship if not for him a year ago. So I, I'm just saying this entire scenario is a bit of an outlier. But what's not an outlier is to become from good to great. You have to have that in-between purgatory where you really, really struggle, where you pick up some wounds. And I think that was it for Pascal. Like, it would have been too clean and too perfect if he just, yeah, Kawhi's gone, higher usage. I'm just going to run through the regular season. I'm going to Euro-step my way through the NBA. There had to be a struggle point. And it's sad it came at the most important part of the season. But, again, whether you're Dirk Nowitzki before he got over the hump or you can go to other sports, whether it's Peyton Manning. This is how superstars are made. Like, it's, it's, it's an ugly process at times. And I, I think Pascal just had it all to bear in front of the world. And it's tough right now. But for me to say, okay, he's not what we thought, who knows? He, he, he wasn't what we thought. He exceeded our expectations before. So I'm not going to punish him now uh, because he looks like what – he should look like a first-time All-Star guy that was drafted somewhat late in the first round. That's trying to figure it out on the fly. Yeah, he's trying to do something that's extremely difficult, and that is become a superstar. I don't think that he'll ever be that, and I think this is the mistake that Raptors fans make. Pascal Siakam becoming an All-Star is an incredible feat, and he can still live up to the contract. Like I, I had so many friends texting me, like, "Can you rescind the contract? Can you give it not give the max?" Because Everyone kind of assumes that, you know, the best player on a max deal, blah, 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 go on and down the line. Here are some realities, though. One is that in a salary cap era, and you and I have talked about this many times before, you really need to exceed value in spots, right? You got to find spots where you can exceed contract value. And if you look at the Raptors championship, I would say that just about everybody on the team exceeded their contract value. Like even Kawhi Leonard, who was a star player making a lot of money, obviously exceeded that. Pascal Siakam making what he made at the time was exceeding that. Like, I don't know what the, who the guy is that you would circle and say where you were getting value. It's going to be harder for the Raptors to win moving forward. It just is. Like, Siakam's going to be on a max contract. Fred Van Vliet's going to get paid. You're going to have one more year of Kyle Lauer making a ton of dough. I think that you're probably, I, I'm hoping they bring back Serge Ibaka on a short-term deal. Maybe you bring back both centers. I'm less inclined to bring back Gasol. I just think that maybe you try more small ball lineups and you start becoming more of those Siakam at the five lineups or OG and Anobi at the five lineups. But that ultimately, you have to live up to your billing. And so Siakam does get a bit of a pass this year. Like, I know that that's not how a lot of Raptors fans feel, but you're right. 
This was his first full year as a 1A player, and I think that you give him, you know, a, a B. Like, he made the all-star team, and he was really good, but he didn't show up in the biggest spots, and when the Raptors played good teams, he didn't show up in those games throughout the regular season either. Like, we should have kind of, we had a pretty good hint that this was coming with this player. And I don't mean this as an insult to him. Like, I think being a superstar in the NBA, that there's like 10 of them. And I don't think Siakam's going to be one of those guys. I'd be so happy if he proves me wrong. I'm so happy if, you know, Kyle Lowry adds this to the compilation of, hey, Siakam, you hear what they're saying about you. He's a very good player. I don't think that he can be the best player on a team. I don't think that he can be the guy that drives your half-court offense for a couple of different reasons, is that I think it's too steep of a progression to try and make for a guy to add a jump shot, to add ball handling, to add all these things into your arsenal this late in the game when you don't have those things to lean on, when you do need, as you said it, more reps. He needs, to me, the thing that's most important for Siakam with his development is that he gets more chances to be the 1A guy, that they go into next season and he keeps working on this thing. I just don't think that even another year he'll be ready to all of a sudden go into a playoff series with a Jason Tatum and be able to go toe-to-toe with a player like that when things get sticky and things get tough. And so can you build a good enough team around two big pillar players with contracts like that, or three considering Lowry will have that next year? I don't know. It it feels like a big-time bridge year. Like, you run it back, you work on Siakam's game more, and the following season, you're back to, you really hope Pascal takes another step. I'm just not sure how big that step can become. I believe he'll bounce back from this. I think he'll become a better player from this. I certainly don't think that he's anything like the player that we saw in the series. But yeah, a lot of this offseason and coming season is going to be, what do you actually have in Pascal Siakam? Where is the true ceiling of this player? And will he be a guy that other players identify and say, I want to play with that guy and I'll find a way to play with that guy. I think those are now those are now in bigger question than they were heading into the playoffs. So we've got some new things for you this NBA season. And no, it's not just Terrence Davis playing so well. We have a newsletter that will break that down and so much more. Our weekly newsletter from NBA editor Stephen Leung. It gives you original content, opinion, analysis. You can't find it anywhere else, and it is delivered directly to you right in your inbox, sportsnet.ca slash newsletters. Just subscribe, and we got you. Yeah, I mean, I think you have more flexibility financially um, than you suspect with Mark and Serge both coming off the books at high numbers, numbers that they're not going to resign at here or elsewhere. Uh, I think you maybe try and get Serge on a little bit of a hometown deal, and you say, Mofuji Chef, you're making a lot of money off the court in Toronto, my guy. Uh, let, let's do something, and you can have a legacy here. Well, Canada, there's not a lot Toronto. of teams with cap, too, right? So the Raptors have an advantage there. Certainly not a lot of good teams with cap, mm-hmm. and that process uh, gets a little bit even more difficult and tight when you look at the fact that the cap is going to be flat over the next two years, most likely, mm-hmm. given the real realities of, of COVID-19. And so you're looking at a cap at 109 moving forward. And even for, for Fred Van Vliet, listen, I love Fred. Bet on yourself. Uh uh, it's not just a motto, it's a lifestyle. I hope he gets his money. Um, but, but money is not based on what you deserve. It's what the market dictates. And 
someone is going to probably trade for Chris Paul. So that's a point guard that's that's a winning point guard, very expensive, but but someone who's available. The top of the draft is loaded with with good point guards. And again, there's not a lot of teams, to your point, who have money. Does Fred want to go to a rebuilding situation? I mean, who knows? But it, 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 the Brogdon deal that was signed, that's you know, $21.5 million, uh, averaged for four years, is that type of money, which theoretically would be the starting point if I'm Fred and his representatives, that's the type of money that's still going to be out there given the real cap concerns a lot of teams are going to have? I don't know. I, we, we'll get into um, you, you know what the, the offseason looks like moving forward, but in terms of building with Pascal, that listen, that a house is worth what it's worth at the time someone's willing to sell. And when it was time to do Pascal's deal, there is not one team in the NBA that would say they would not be very comfortable with Pascal at that number. They would, they would actually think it's, it's great value. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. And, and he's, we're not talking about him being on a super max where it's, it's going to eat up the majority of your cap. You can still have Pascal as a 1B superstar and have the flexibility to bring in, I don't know, another superstar whose name I won't mention uh, because it will be aggregated, but who has a good relationship with the general manager. Oh, I'll aggregate Or with it. the president. It's, I think that, yeah, still the plan, the hope, the dream is that you can get into an offseason and convince Giannis Atenekumbo to come here. The... I just wonder if you're further away from that goal now, considering that Giannis appears to be unhappy. The Raptors can't trade for Giannis. If they're trading for Giannis, it involves Pascal Siakam in the deal. And then it's like, if you're, pass, if you're Giannis, why would you want to come here after they've just traded, you know, the, the team's brightest future star? Like, I don't really see how that equates. So, and then a year from now, that's what I'm saying. You need to have a really good year from Siakam and Van Vliet. And the point I'm, not, I'm making is not that Siakam's contract was bad. It's just that this is the realities of a salary cap era is that it's going to be harder and harder as you lose flexibility as guys come up and get paid. You've got to pay OG and Anobi coming up. You've got to pay Fred Van Vliet coming up. Like Pascal Siakam already got his. You're, you're going to have to fork over some money. And can you win with a core that's built around those three players? I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't believe that those three guys are going to be good enough to go up against other teams' best three guys and win you a championship. And so it's like, what are the goals here? That's just the cost of doing business, right? Like, that's not a unique issue for Toronto. The the Rockets have two of the top 10 highest paid players in the league. The Bucs cap is a mess, and they're still not reaching the finals, never mind. Um, So, I mean, I suppose outside of Miami, I don't know if a team that is competing for a championship has a better cap situation than the Raptors. I mean, I don't know going through team by team. I know that the Celtics will lose Hayward moving forward and they'll have to pay guys, but the Raptors cap situation is definitely not going to be easy when it comes to adding another superstar to this group. And I, you and I have talked a lot about Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. We had a conversation kind of in the middle of the year after they had beaten the Lakers and they went on that West Coast road trip of like, hey, when do you turn the keys over to these guys? And I think one of the difficulties of the series was you're not ready to. Kyle Lowry was still their best player in a series and that Fred Van Vliet, despite having moments of brilliance and amazing defense in the series, like honestly, Fred Van Vliet had so many possessions where I just was like awestruck by how good he is defensively. But the decision-making at times was not great. He is not good at attacking the rim. Like it's just not a part of his game. He's one of the worst percentage shooters in the NBA at the rim because again, he's six feet tall. 
And if the three-point shot is not dropping from a couple feet behind the three-point line, you know, he's going to have some difficulty to score or to create for himself. And Pascal Siakam, like you said, a guy who's only 10 years into playing basketball and who still needs a lot of reps, I'm, I'm just not as confident that you can build around those two. Like, you're really going to need someone else to emerge. And whether that's OG and Anobi, I, I'm not going to discount his ceiling just yet, but he's got a long way to go too. I was talking to Blake Murphy about this today. Like, it's one thing to dream on that, but also he's been the fourth guy or the fifth guy in an offense. You're asking him to go from a usage rating of like 10 to 13% to what, 20%? 25% like that's a really big leap for that player and you would probably see a lot of the same struggles that we've seen with other guys trying to develop from that role so to me the Raptors still need something that is external not just something that is internal for them to win their next championship like that's how I feel after watching this series I thought this year was their best chance of winning considering all of those variables that you mentioned and the fact that the Bucks didn't end up as scary as they were and that everybody looks a little even but I'm less sure of what they can be with this core in terms of ceiling than I was entering this playoffs. Change my mind. Uh, I mean, well, on Fred specifically, uh, I, I, I do think actually, you know, his value defensively shouldn't be understated. He, he, he did an amazing job against Curry in the final. Oh, he's incredible at that. To be under six feet tall and be that good at defense is like, it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring. Well, in an era where on the perimeter specifically, you're not allowed to to touch people. So yeah. we, we've just decided like it's, it's impossible to be a good uh, defender of point guards because you know, the handles have got so good and you, you can't touch people. And to keep uh, Kemba, he got him for 189 possessions. Keep him shooting 30.8 from the floor in those possessions. Is, is, wow. I mean, Kemba's an all-star and he's an all-star because he's a bucket getter and he stopped them from getting buckets. The thing though, why I think actually, you know, Van Vliet is in some ways more valuable to the Raptors than some of any other teams is because all of those possessions, which and I think he was exhausted, which is part of the reason why he struggled a bit offensively after being super hot offensively coming into the, to the series. All of those possessions where you're playing that difficult defense against an elite point guard are possessions that Kyle Lowry doesn't have to play that difficult defense against an elite point guard at at the age of uh, you know 34, and, and and Lowry can just you know hide in the corner. And, and I mean, he and, played a lot of defense on Jason Tatum in that series. True, but it's different than chasing Kemba Walker around around picks. He wasn't the primary defender on, on, on Jason Tatum to start possessions. He was often guarding Marcus Smart and then eventually gating, uh, guarding Tatum because they were involving him in the pick and roll, or he was stepping up and out of the dunker spot and trying to judge, draw some charges, um, which he did flawlessly. I, 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 I think this, this team's pretty close. I mean, you talked about it. Some execution here or there. Um, you know, some different coaching decisions here or there, your best player not being in an uncharacteristic uh, slump. I, I think they're pretty close, but I think they're pretty close more so um, because of their culture and the actual yeah. roster. Like the Clippers have by far to me, like the best roster. And they just decide when they want and want, when they do and don't want to play and when they do and don't want to play defense. And, and if, if the Raptors had another all-star, in this culture, I mean, quite, quite frankly, I, I think there's a reason why um, Masai hasn't really blown blown things up because I think he's, he, he thinks they're pretty close. And just look at their consistency. I know they didn't win this year, and I know Kawhi is gone. But you, lo you look at the sample size of in the last two years, most wins 134. Last three years, mm -hmm. most wins 197. Last four years, most wins 252. 
this is a group that's won a lot of games. Yep. And so, so I just think they need another piece, um, specifically one that can create their own offense like Kawhi did to take them right back to that championship level. Yeah. It, see, and it's a good point too, right? Is, and again, why perspective is important that the Raptors really struggled in the half court in the series, but their defense is so good that it didn't matter. Like that their defense was such a, we said it all year long. That's their identity as a group. I remember sitting in the studio in the before four times when we actually got into places together and sat in rooms together. And we talked about how that was their identity and that was their chance to win a championship was defense, uglying up games and being, you know, the 2013 uh, Seattle Seahawks run the ball and get stops, like get stops, get stops, get stops. And they kind of did that for the most of that series. And it's why, like you said, they didn't want to bench Pascal Siakam because they didn't want to go away from their identity, which was taking one of their best, you know, two, three defensive players off the floor, that they had to stick with that. That's the argument for it. You're right, though. If you look at this offseason, I don't know how they accomplish it, but if they could add another guy that scores in the half court, like effortlessly, like if they could find somebody that is a bucket getter, and maybe that's Terrence Davis, maybe that's internally. Maybe that's another full year of Norm Powell because, again, if he's better in that series throughout the entire I'm not as convinced, but you get my point. Maybe that is just a little bit more development from Pascal. Like they can be close. Just to me... Everything in basketball ultimately comes down to like, how can you close games and how can you finish them off? And can you get buckets? And if the Raptors would have had someone that can do that, they would have won this series because just think about the close games. Sure. There was the two blowouts, right? But think about every other game they lost the first game they lose. It's because they don't have scoring down the stretch. Even the game they won in game six, that goes to overtime. We talked about it. They went four and a half minutes without a bucket to close it. Like they shouldn't have gone to double overtime. Like they just needed a basket. And the only reason they were in it is because their defense continued to kind of keep them there. How many teams can go four and a half minutes in a close ball game and not, and even go to overtime? Like they need, they need a little bit more scoring and I don't know where they get that. It needs to be internal um, because I, I don't think that they're going to have the means to be able to go out and get in a trade. And I don't, unless it involves their first round picks and a player. And I don't know, maybe Masai can pull something off, but we'll see before we run. I know you got to go. Oh, do you want to say something on this? Well, I'll just say, just look, look at the teams who who basically made it this far, right? Uh, they have a super max player and a guy who at the end of the game can either hit a shot for you or get to the free throw line. The Lakers and LeBron James. The Clippers and Kawhi Leonard, and some would argue Paul George, but for this, let's say Kawhi Leonard. The Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler. Uh, the Boston Celtics, their, their highest paid guy is Kemba Walker, but that guy actually is Jason Tatum. In every every team, no disrespect to the Denver Nuggets, but every team who's a championship contender that is still playing right now has a guy who makes 30 to 35% of their cap and they roll the ball out to him and say, break glass, get us a bucket when it matters. And, and so the difference between the Raptors is they have everything else. The entire house is immaculately decorated. They just need to, to figure out that last piece. They just need to figure out I guess, what's the last piece that you do when designing your house? Your kitchen? People tell you to invest. Oh, no, you kitchen. tell me. I have an apartment. <laughs> yeah. You tell me. They, they just need a little, little kitchen reno. Okay. Um, some nice gold fixtures. And they'll, they'll be good to go. Yeah. Um, I, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, when it gets close, those, those small things, those margins are the difference. And that's why those guys are worth the amount of money that they make. And that's why, moving forward, uh, I think the scariest team you know, won't, won't just be the Celtics. And I don't, I, I think moving forward, it might not even be the Bucks. I think the Nets are scary in a playoff series 
for that very same reason. Yeah, I, I don't think we're saying anything revolutionary here that it's like, yeah, guess what? A, a team with a mediocre half-court offense is going to have a tough time winning an NBA championship, that they're going to need a lot of breaks. And yeah, the Raptors, if they're going to take another step, are going to need Siakam to be better. They're going to need Fred Van Vliet to be more like the player that we saw in the Brooklyn series and that we saw at times in the Celtics one. I don't know how much longer you can count on Kyle Lowry. Again, he's going to be 35 years old next year. And He's only on a one-year deal left. That's anyway. Um, we're going to have to see. But they, they are certainly going to be – they're very close to a pivot point. I'm, I'm kind of in the mold of run it back for one more season, bring everybody back that you can if they're willing to take those good deals. Like I saw there's a rumor that Dallas is going to be heavily invested in trying to pull Serge Ibaka from the Toronto Raptors and that they will try to offer him some money, which makes sense. It's a fit that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure you bring back Marcus Saul. I wouldn't really hate it if you bring him back on a cheap one-year deal because, again, you just maintain cap flexibility moving forward. But ultimately, I would like to see more OG, more Siakam at the five. So not as thrilled about that move, even though I think Saul was a great Raptor. It could be time to move on. You see what the, the rigors of a regular season can do to a guy like that. But like, I think his legs are very shot, and it's going to be very hard to keep him healthy for the course of a season. But, yeah, there's room, there's room for internal growth still. The Raptors are not completely screwed over. They don't have a bad contract on the books. The only thing that's a real big question, I think, this offseason is what Fred Van Vliet gets and what someone else offers him and how high the Raptors' number has to be for Fred not to feel like he's being slighted and that he is willing to stay in a place where he matters a lot culture-wise. Because you said that thing, and, and this would be the last thing we, we talk about before we wrap up, that you said Fred is more important than the Raptors in a lot of ways. And I agree, but if you're a team like the Detroit Pistons, or you're a team like the New York Knicks and you've had real problems with your culture for a lot of years and you need to bring in somebody that not only is a really good basketball player, but plays hard every single night and seems to be really loved by his teammates and someone who can get you to buy in, who's won at every level. Like that guy's a winner at every level. You get a chance to bring him in. If you're the Detroit Pistons, what are you going to spend cap money on that's better than Fred Van Vliet? Like who's coming to visit? You, you think that they're in the Giannis sweepstakes a year from now? Like They're not. They don't have to worry about that. So who's to say they don't go to Fred Van Vliet and say, how much do you want to be a Piston? Do you want $30 million? Because we'll give that to you. Like, we'll give you $30 million Because what else are we going to spend it on? Come to Detroit. Come help us build something in Detroit and be a fixture of our team. Be our franchise player, for God's sakes. And how high up the chain can the Raptors go? Can they go into the 20 plus million dollars for Fred Van Vliet, like with a flat cap for two years and still stay relevant? And if Giannis hits free agency, like these are important questions for them. So I, I hope that the Fred Van Vliet sweepstakes are drama free and that he is a Toronto Raptor and that they come out day one of free agency and say, Fred, here's our number. We're going to offer you a lot. We think that this is above market value for you for most places. We know that one place will offer you money, but we can hopefully offer you money, winning and happiness here. And not to mess with a good thing. But I think if there's one thing that's going to get bigger and noisier throughout the offseason, it's going to be the potential for a Detroit Pistons team to offer Fred Van Vliet a lot of money because it makes a lot of sense for them to do so. Yeah, there's a rumor you heard throughout the regular season that Detroit and, you know, obviously Dwayne Casey's super interested yep. in Fred. Chicago makes sense, to be honest, and they don't have the cap room to do it, but he would fit really well in Philadelphia. 
um, and, and could share a backcourt with Ben Simmons. Sure. Ben I was going to say, so, trade him for Joel Embiid. That's a fair trade. Yeah, right. <laughs> one for one. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Fred number will be, will be very interesting. And, and sometimes I think as a president and as a GM, you know, the, the task for Bobby and Masai is you want to win every deal, right? You, you obviously want to feel good about it. Um, but sometimes this one. It, it makes sense to not win a deal, right? Like mm-hmm. giving Kyle Lowry $31.5 million at this point, did they win that deal? Probably not. But did mm-hmm. having a happy camper in Lowry uh, propel that team or propel that culture? Ultimately, did they probably get more out of the player because they respected um, his value and, and, and paid a price that they maybe didn't have to? I think they did. I think in the long run, that actually w- was prudent rather than fighting um, and, and trying to either get him at a lower number or just letting the the contract uh, expire and him hitting free agency. And so within reason, you're obviously not going to do something crazy just because Detroit has money to burn. But I think, do, do you feel like you have to win this deal with Fred? No, I, oh, I, I think, think you can. A, I think there's a number where you both can feel, feel good and feel comfortable about it. Uh, as, as, aside so. from the outlier that, um, you know, Phoenix just says, I'm, we're giving you an offer you can't refuse, or Detroit does the same. I think Phoenix blew it that they should have actually offered Fred VanVleet that big offer sheet, like that big when he was restricted free agent. And they were rumored to go after him. Like if they could jump in a time machine, that'd be one that I really think they would want back. It was a terrific Raptors season. Um, you and I both enjoyed it immensely. Again, very proud of this team. Um, very happy with the way that they represented the city of Toronto. Uh, I think that they are a, a good reflection of their of their fan base. Uh, is there one moment that's going to stick out for you above them all when you think back to this season? Is there one, is there one thing that's going to happen? Because I, I think it's going to be the OG shot now, but like from the regular season when it was, I think I'm, I'm putting them almost as two different seasons, two different years. Yeah, I mean, it's got, I mean, the, the moment has to be the OG shot. I yeah, mean, no the, doubt. The, the time period in the regular season is when they you know, went off for a franchise record. 15 straight wins was, yeah. was fun, but, but the, the specific game would be, um, you know, franchise record in terms of a comeback. And this is a team that had so many um, comebacks and actually led the league in fourth quarter comebacks. And I think that to me, when I'll remember this team, it's just that like no lead was safe. Uh, no situation was too precarious. Um, whether they came back or not, you knew they were going to give, uh, 100% max effort and have 100% belief. And so um, I talked to Nick Nurse uh, in a Q&A that's on sportsnet.ca um, about him, you know, being so vocal about different causes and, and wearing, you know, clothing that represents, you know, who he is as a person and what he believes. And I talked to him about the team. And, and you know, one thing he, he talked about was interesting is that sometimes communities or fan bases inspire a team. and sometimes teams inspire a community and a fan base. And in this group, I think both were true. Um, and so their ability to fight back um, was very Canadian. And that's, what, that's the aspect of them that I loved. Yeah, uh, that's really well said. For me, it's just simply the Joel Embiid. Mine's petty. <laughs> I think Joel Embiid to zero points of 11 that night after it was all about like, here comes Joel. He's going to come back with a vengeance. And you know what? Maybe it's a little bit more diminished now after we saw what Joel Embiid did in, in the bubble and you know how the rest of his year played out. But at the time it was like, here comes Joel Embiid back with a vengeance and he's going to try to get one over the Raptors. And there was all this you know pent up 
uh, animosity. And then again, no Kawhi Leonard. So you're like, oh, the South, the Sixers this year are going to steamroll the Raptors. They picked up Al Horford. What'd the Raptors do? Who'd they get? Matt Thomas? They got Al Horford here. They got uh, Josh Richardson. They've revamped things. They look great. Full year. Max Toby. Like, speaking of bad max contracts, like bad big contracts, the Atkins no uh, Tobias Harris. Like, it's like that, that's, that's a bad contract. I love that night. That was great. And again, it was representative of what the Raptors are, is that they are some of their parts more than they are a couple of individuals. And that's what I like. There's a reason why when they did the slam cover that it was multiple guys, right, for the Raptors. And I just, that's what I'll think about, is that no one thought they could defend the title. No one thought that they could do it. And they come up short in a game seven. But for the vast majority of the year, like from at least, you know, close to the all-star break on, people recognized that, it was going to be extremely difficult to beat this team. And for the Boston Celtics, legitimately, it took some crazy Marcus Smart threes at the end of a game and some really fortuitous breaks that, that fell their way against a really tough out that never really went away. They just reminded me of zombies. Like, it was just, you know, wave after wave after wave. They kept coming back at you, those Raptors. Like you said, very, very, uh, very strong-willed team, very well-led team, very mature team, um, one that... So far in my lifetime, I, I do not think I have enjoyed watching one team more than the Toronto Raptors, where I've just like been very excited for their games. Their, their product was f fantastic this year. Um, thank you to you for this season. Good season. Uh, thank you to Michael, who came on board like halfway through the year. It's been great. And thanks to our buddy Mike DeSoni, who's putting this thing up on YouTube. This, this has been great. Uh, I know you got to run. And thanks to all the Raptors fans that have listened to this thing, that have subscribed to this thing, that have followed it on Spotify, that have shared it on Twitter, uh, that have reached out to us personally, that have screwed with my email address, all of that stuff. Uh, thank you very much for uh, a good Raptors season. Uh, we look forward to the next one. Uh, Street Association, signing out. J.D. Bunkus, Donovan Bennett. Catch you soon.